Be still, my soul. Okay. Number 290 on the first. Be still, my soul. The Lord is on my side. Scripture teaches us not only that we should, but how to pray for one another. 
I want to look at something different this morning that I hope will be an encouragement to you, a blessing to you. <clears throat> John chapter 10 is where we will begin. We will be going through the Gospel of John. And you can look at the Gospel of John as a portrait gallery. I believe that the Apostle John, when he penned this book, the Gospel of John, that he intended it to be something like a portrait gallery of the Lord Jesus Christ. He wanted us to see different aspects of the life of Christ. And really all four gospel authors did that. But John especially wrote in such a way that you get a glimpse of Christ as the Son of God, uh, as no other book in the Bible portrays. John chapter 10, verse 11, is the, the portrait that we want to begin with. And then we'll jump back to the beginning of the, of the portrait gallery that is the Gospel of John and, and walk through that this morning. And for the time that we have together in the Word of God, we're going to be thinking about and just looking at these, these portraits of Christ. John chapter 10, verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. John chapter 10 is the Good Shepherd chapter. And it's very plain who the Good Shepherd is. The Lord Jesus identifies himself here in verse 11 as the Good Shepherd. I am the Good Shepherd. The Good Shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. How did he give his life for the sheep? Let's take a walk through the portrait gallery of the Gospel of John and look at some of the portraits that John painted for us of how Jesus gave his life for the sheep. Father, we thank you for the word of God. We thank you that we have this opportunity to open the word this morning, to think about, to look at these portraits that you inspired John to paint through words of our Savior, and specifically of how he gave his life for the sheep. Speak to us now, I pray. Draw sinners to Jesus and draw thy saints closer to thyself. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And the first portrait is found in John chapter 1. Turn there, please. John chapter 1, verse 29. John chapter 1, verse 29. The next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him and saith, Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. Behold the Lamb of God. There are, two, there are two truths that I believe John wants us to see here when he tells us what John the Baptist said here in John chapter 1, verse 29. In this first portrait that John paints for us of Jesus, the two truths that he wants us to see, first of all, is that Jesus in his death would die a vicarious death vicarious we don't use that word every day but it's not obsolete we we use the term vicarious experience often particularly in the world of sports you'll hear sports fans say we won we beat them well really they didn't do anything you know the fan they we've got some friends back in florida in jacksonville in a church there and they love it when the gators win and here's what they said there's a brother in the church there brother gary some you boys know Brother Gary. Brother Gary says, he talks with the other brothers in church, and he says, yeah, we beat them, and he gives this score. We beat them by this. 
And I, I just stood there and smiled thinking, no, you didn't. <laughs> no, you didn't. You didn't, you didn't. you did not shed a drop of sweat on that field. But the idea is that he is experiencing it through or uh, by watching them. When the Lord Jesus died for us, it was not a humorous experience and it wasn't uh, a vicarious experience in the sense that uh, he was imagining that he was taking our place. No, he was truly taking our place. It was a substitutionary death. He died in our place. And we see that through the word lamb. Lamb. And if we were a first century Jew listening to John the Baptist say, Behold the Lamb of God, if we had been paying attention in synagogue, we, we would have thought almost immediately of the story of Abraham and Isaac. When God said to Abraham, Take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and offer him to me for a burnt offering on the mountains that I will tell thee of. And Abraham obeyed. The Bible tells us that the next day, early in the morning, Abraham arose and he took his son Isaac with him and he took some servants, two servants along, and they and they took a donkey and they they carried some supplies up. And then Abraham told the two young men, wait here while the lad and I go and pray, go and worship yonder. And then he placed the wood on Isaac's shoulders. And he carried the fire probably in a, in a pot or on a, on a um, torch. And as they walked up the hillside alone, just father and son, Isaac had seen his father offer burnt offerings before. He knew that there's something missing here. Now, you don't use a donkey. They had a donkey, but they didn't use the donkey. He said, Father, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Where is the lamb? And Abraham said these words that were a prophecy. He said, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. And of course, when they reached the top of the, mount, of the mountain that God showed him, that God led them to, Abraham built an altar. He bound his son Isaac. He laid him on the wood on the altar. He reached for the knife. He raised the knife to offer his son to God. And an angel from God called him out of heaven and told him, don't hurt the lamb. Now I know. Now I know. And, and, and then the Bible tells us that Abraham lifted up his eyes. He looked and, be, and he saw a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. Maybe it looked like a crown of thorns. I don't know. Caught in the thicket, in the bush, his horns. And Abraham took that ram and he offered that ram in his place. In a way, what Abraham said about God will provide himself a lamb, it was fulfilled that day except that it wasn't a lamb. It was a ram. A ram is a full-grown male, not a young one. He said, God will provide himself a lamb. That was not provided until the Lord Jesus came. He's the lamb of God. He's the substitute. The ram died in Isaac's place. Amen. And the lamb of God would die in our place. And so when 
when John said, Behold the Lamb of God, what he was telling us is that this one, this Jesus, he is the substitute who will die in our place. And then he said, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. And again, if we were a first century Jew and we'd been paying attention to synagogue, we would have thought back to when God instructed Moses that every year the Jewish people, the Israelite people, were to take a ram and place, the high priest would place his hands on the head of the ram and confess the sins of the nation while holding his hands on the goat's head. And symbolically, that transferred their sin to the goat. And then the Bible says this, that by the hand of a fit man, the goat should be led off far away into the wilderness, to a place where he would not return back to the camp of Israel. Symbolically, taking away their sin. Symbolically. Not truly, but symbolically. John said that this one, he saw Jesus coming and he said, Behold, look at the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. And so Jesus, as the Lamb of God, is our substitute who would die in our place. He's also the sin bearer who would take away the sin, not just of the Jewish people, but the sin of the world. That's the first portrait that John has painted for us of the death of Christ, how Jesus would lay down his life for his sheep. John chapter 1, verse 29. Let's continue walking through the portrait gallery of the Gospel of John and come to John chapter 2. John chapter 2, we will begin here at verse 18. Then answered the Jews and said unto him, What sign showest thou unto us? seeing that thou doest these things. Remember that the Jews require a sign. Verse 19, Jesus answered and said unto them, destroy this temple. Now watch, maybe he pointed to his body when he said this, destroy this temple. Not like this, watch, not destroy this temple, but destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. How do we know he's talking about his, the body? Look at verses 20 and 21. Then said the Jews, 40 and six years was this temple. Watch, this temple, this building that they were standing in. 40 and six years was this temple in building. And wilt thou rear it up in three days? Verse 21, but he spake of the temple of his body. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now, do you think that the Lord Jesus knew what would happen to that temple in about 40 years when the Roman general Titus came in with his Roman legions? Jesus had prophesied this. Even before he died, he told his disciples that all of these stones... Not one of them will not be cast down. Big blocks of granite that the temple was built of. Not one of these stones will not be cast down. 
I think that he had that in mind when he said destroy this temple. I think he had that image in mind. He was not talking about the temple in Jerusalem. He was talking about his body. But the image was of the complete destruction of his body. I think we who are Bible believers and we hear about the gospel all the time, sometimes we forget the violence of the death of Jesus. We're thankful that it was vicarious in our place. But this second portrait teaches us that Jesus died a violent death. Some of you enjoy learning about history. I recently listened to an audiobook about Andrew Jackson, President Andrew Jackson. He wasn't the president yet, but he was the one man who was fit to lead America in its fight against the British in the War of 1812. And we know about, about Fort, uh, it has slipped my mind, Baltimore, Fort McHenry, when, the, when our colors, they did not strike our colors, our, our star-spangled banner kept flying. But it wasn't long after that battle that the real turning point happened, the Battle of New Orleans. And in that battle, a British officer was leading his charge against the American line. And the Americans had built a, a, a short wall defending a narrow strip of land that led into New Orleans. And they had cannons set up all along that wall. And Jackson, President, uh, to, to be Jackson, uh, President General Jackson, rode on his horse back and forth along that line, encouraging his men. And at one point, one of those American cannons struck that British officer off his horse, a direct hit, and it shattered. The description was that it shattered his spine. And his men picked him up off the ground and carried him over to an oak tree and rested him down on, laid him down under an oak tree where he sat with his shattered spine and died a gruesome death. That's the reality of war. Not a pleasant sight, not a pleasant thought. When I heard that, it just, you know, I, I read so much and I listen to so much about battles and combat, and sometimes it's easy to, to become inane or uh, to become calloused to when you hear about so many men died on a, on a ship or so many men were killed in a battle. But when you get down to the details of an individual being killed in a gross, gruesome, violent manner, it sometimes shocks us back into the reality that the human body can be put through tremendous, unspeakable, indescribable tortures. And that is what our Savior endured for you and me. A violent death. He said, destroy this temple. I remember being a little boy and seeing something that you don't see anymore. An old building being torn down with a wrecking ball. How many of you have ever seen a wrecking ball in, in action? That's something you don't see anymore today. And there's a crane and it's got the ball and the crane operators, they knew how to, how to 
move the crane just the right way to swing on the long end of a cable or a chain, this big iron ball, and they crash into the side of a building to tear it down. Really an awesome thing. Destruction. Jesus said, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. The death of Jesus for his sheep was a violent death. Come to the next to the next portrait with me now. John chapter 3. John chapter 3. Now the Lord Jesus is talking to one of the Jewish leaders named Nicodemus. You'll notice that the Lord Jesus in this passage is going to use a picture from the Old Testament, a story from the Old Testament. Jesus used the stories of the Old Testament to point to himself because that's why the Old Testament is written. Amen. It's written to show us the Lord Jesus Christ. John chapter 3 and verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, that's a reference to Numbers chapter 21. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. What is this talking about? In Numbers chapter 21, the Israelites were complaining to Moses. They were coming through the wilderness, wandering out of Egypt, coming up to Canaan land, complaining, complaining, complaining. God was tired of the complaining. The Bible tells us that God sent fiery serpents among them. What are fiery serpents? They're serpents that when they bite, it feels like fire. Venomous serpents venomous snakes and they crawl all around the, the, the camp and I just can't you can you imagine snakes all over I see one snake and I want to get away you know, I see one snake and I want to reach for a gun uh, I have killed at least one uh, with a gun I've killed one snake with a with a garden hoe and uh, I, I the only to me the only good snake is a dead snake and I know that's been said so many times by so many people but it's true the only good snake to me He's a dead snake. I know there's king snake. I know there are good snakes that 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 take care of the bad snakes. And yeah, okay. If I knew what it was, you know, they say if it's got you know pits in the side of its head and it's diamond shaped and its eyes are this shape, then it's venomous. Then you'll know, you know, to get away. I don't want to get that close to find out. You know, I just stay away. God sent fiery serpents among the people. Bit the Bible says bit much people and much people died and they cried out to Moses and Moses cried out to God and God told Moses what to do he said take a pole and on that pole make a serpent out of brass make a snake out of brass and hang it on the pole and then lift that pole up and then it will come to pass that if any man has been bitten by a serpent, when he looks on the pole, on the snake, on the serpent, on the pole, he will live. And isn't it interesting? God did not say that they had to say anything to that serpent or that they had to come close to that serpent or that they had to do anything toward that serpent or that they needed to do any kind of religious ritual or ordinance or anything. All that a man had to do if he knew he was snake bit and he was he was going to die. He could see the people around him. They were all they were dying. 
All a man had to do to save his life was look at the serpent. And the Lord Jesus said to Nicodemus, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That whosoever believeth in him, not whosoever says anything, not whosoever does anything, but whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal. And so what was Jesus comparing himself to here in this portrait? He was saying, Nicodemus, you remember the story of Moses and the Israelites and how God told Moses what to do to solve the problem, to heal them, make a brazen serpent, raise it up high. Whoever looks at it will live. Remember that, Nicodemus? Yes, I remember that story. I know that story. Nicodemus was a ruler of the Jews. He knew the story. And the Lord said, just like that, I will be lifted up. I, the Son of Man, will be lifted up. And just like someone, just as whoever would look at the servant would live, in the same way, whoever will trust in me will live too. And not just be healed of sin in this life, like they were healed physically there, but they will now receive eternal life. You see what he was comparing himself to? He was comparing himself to a serpent on a pole. Isn't it interesting that what God used to heal the Israelites was an image of the very thing that harmed them, the very thing that was killing them? The Bible tells us that our Savior was made sin for us. What does that mean? I honestly, I admit, I don't know completely how to understand or explain that. But we know this, that when God the Son hung up on the cross, God the Father looked at him as if he were our sin. And he poured his wrath, his indignation, his anger against sin, righteous anger, upon his only begotten son. In the first portrait, John painted for us a picture of Jesus the in dying a vicarious death. In the second portrait, a violent death. And then in this third portrait here in John 3, this is a vile death. Did Jesus delight in becoming sin? He was the pure one. He was the perfect one. Who among us can say, I've never had a sinful thought? Who among us can say, I have never lied? Who among us can say, I have never taken something that's not mine? Who among us, among us can say, I have never entertain a lustful thought? Who among us can say that? Who among us can say, I have always loved God more than myself? Who among us can say, I have loved my neighbor as myself? 
Who among us can say that? Only one could. The perfect son of God. And yet on the cross, he became like that serpent. The picture of evil. Vile that. Come to John chapter 6 as we look at the next portrait of the death of Jesus, how he laid down his life for us. John chapter 6, verse 51. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Notice all of these so far have been in future tense. Either John the Baptist or the Lord himself are talking about the death that will come. Because all of this is within the, the three years leading up to the death of Jesus. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. But for that bread to be eaten, listen to what he says. The bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. He explains it later that eating his flesh and drinking his blood is not a physical action. It is a spiritual action. Verse 63, it is the spirit quickeneth. The flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. Spiritually understood. Spiritual meaning. Eating his flesh is trusting that the flesh, his body, destroyed and broken on the cross was the payment for sin. His blood, drinking his blood simply means trusting in his blood. Trusting, believing on him. He says here in verse 51, the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. When we look at this portrait, the word that can come, that we should think of, that should come to mind, is the word vital. Vital. His death was vital. Now, that might sound like, an, like a contradiction. Because vital means living, necessary to life or of critical importance. That's exactly what his death was. His death was necessary to our life. If Jesus had not died, then we could not have this life. If he had not been lifted up, we could not have eternal life. If he did not die as the substitute for our sin, and take our sin away, we could not have this gift of eternal life. The bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. And so the word vital, by these two definitions of the word vital, necessary to life, and of critical importance, that describes what he's talking about here. Vital death. A vital death. Remember, about three years ago, we had this word 
that suddenly became very, very popular. The word was essential. Remember that? And some of us were deemed essential workers, and some of us were deemed non-essential workers. Now, if that doesn't sound like communism to me, I don't know what does. You are essential, you are not essential, because I say so. Some of us even carried a paper in our car that said, this is from, in this case, from our church, that this individual needs to be on the road coming to church. This is an essential worker. Well, for those of you who didn't make the, the cut of being essential, let me say to you that you, you all are essential. And uh, God sees each one of you as essential, whether our government thinks so or not. But the truly essential one was this one. And the death that he gave, the sacrifice that he made of himself was vital, vital for us. Come now to John chapter 10, where we started. We're back to our starting place in the portrait gallery of the death of Jesus in the Gospel of John. John chapter 10, verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. Come to verse 14. Excuse me, verse 15. As the Father knoweth me, even so know I the Father, and I lay down my life. For the sheep. Verse 17. Therefore doth my father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. Verse 18. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my father. What do we see in these verses here, in this portrait of the death of Jesus? Here's what we see. We see a death that was voluntary. A voluntary death. He was crucified, yes. He was led away, yes. They laid the cross upon his shoulders, yes. They whipped him, yes. All of this is what he received. It seems to be passively. He was whipped. He was uh, given a crown of thorns. He was beaten. He was nailed to the cross. And yet, he said, no man taketh it from me. But I lay it down of myself. What? His life. I lay it down of myself. In some Bibles, this is translated as, I, I, give, I give my life or I sacrifice my life. But you see the you see the specific the the precise wording. I lay it down. The top of Calvary, the top of Golgotha. He was not forced down to the cross. It was not like in the movies where they had to where there was a struggle. Other men surely struggled, but not him. In fact, I wonder, perhaps, 
did the soldiers who were carrying out that execution find it shocking that this one laid down and voluntarily of his own will stretched out his hands. Perhaps he crossed his ankles and lay down his life for his sheep. Voluntary death. We read about what happened in 9-11, September 11th. Those airplanes crashed into those buildings. And those melting steel towers crashing down. And as the buildings were pancaking, collapsing down, firefighters were voluntarily not being forced to. No one holding a gun at their head telling you go into that building or else. No. Voluntarily running into the buildings to rescue people. This one, the Son of God, voluntarily laid down his life for his sheep. Who are his sheep? Look at verse, verse 20, 25, not 24. Then came the Jews round about him and said unto him, How long dost thou make us to doubt? If thou be the Christ, tell us plainly. And I want to say, where have you been? <laughs> Haven't you been listening to everything he said? Where have you been? Verse 25, Jesus answered them, I told you. Don't you love that? I told you. I told you, and ye believe not. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me, but ye believe not, because ye are not of my sheep, as I said unto you. Who are his sheep? Well, it's not those who don't believe him. Believe on him. So that must mean his sheep are those who believe on him. And what does what do his sheep do? And what does he give his sheep? Verse 27, 28. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life. And they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. He's the good shepherd. He gave his life for the sheep. He laid his life down for the sheep in a voluntary death. And so the death of Jesus was vicarious, violent, vile, vital, and voluntary. But thank God it doesn't end there. Amen. Come to John chapter 19. And this is where I want you to see. Just stop and look at this portrait and think about this portrait and just stand there and gaze upon him. Have you ever been to a portrait gallery? I love to go to where there, uh, where there are good paintings. A few years ago, the older boys and I went to the, uh, what's it called? The American the National Museum of Wildlife Art, just outside of Jackson, Wyoming. 
and uh, we paid a few bucks to get in and it was worth every dollar. I came this close, I didn't touch it, I know the rules, but I came this close to an original N.C. Wyeth painting. You that know art, you know that means something. And I love N.C. Wyeth because of his initials, N.C., I just like that, those initials. But I love his artwork. I fell in love with his artwork when I read Robinson Crusoe back when I was 15 years old. And it was illustrated by Robinson, by N.C. Wyeth. And then the Scottish Chiefs, illustrated by N.C. Wyeth. And I looked at that, wow. And then there is an original. Is it Robert Bateman? Is that his name? A life-size painting called Chief. It's a life-size painting of an American bull bison. And that, that painting is there, and I've got a picture of one of the boys standing there in front of that thing, and the thing is massive. And he's, he's detailed down to every individual hair. And we just stood and just soaked it in. Good art. Makes you feel like you're there. Almost like you can smell the bison. <laughs> we just stood there and looked at those paintings. That's what I hope you'll do now. As you look at this last portrait that John has painted for us of the Savior. John chapter 19, verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things are now accomplished, but that the scripture might be fulfilled, saith, I thirst. You've been on the cross now almost six hours. Verse 29. Now there was a vessel, there was set a vessel full of vinegar. And they filled a sponge with vinegar and put it upon hyssop. Hyssop is there's a branch that grows in that, that part of the world, uh, a bush. Put it upon hyssop and put it to his mouth. And so they, they put the sponge in the little pot of vinegar stuck the sponge with that stick and then held that stick up with the sponge on it up to his mouth for him to suck the vinegar out of out of the sponge. Verse 30. When Jesus therefore had received the vinegar he said oh by the way before we read this part there were two times that he was offered something to drink and the first time he was offered something to drink he refused it. But the second time he was offered something to drink, he received it. Why? Why? I heard someone preach one time that, you see, that's proof that, that Jesus would not drink alcohol. Well, he rejected it the first time, but received it the second time. Well, here's why, I think. If he had tasted of the drink that they gave him the first time, it would have eased his pain and perhaps dulled his mental faculties. And in order for him to fully take our punishment for our sin, he had to be present. He had to be fully aware and he had to physically take all 
of what his screaming nerves were telling his system. Absolute, indescribable agony. But it's done now. He is hung on the cross. He has suffered. Now, he received the vinegar. Verse 30, when Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. He released his spirit, in other words. He released his life. It is finished. It is done. It is completed. What is done? What is completed? What is finished? Well, he did not say, I am finished. Or it is finished. The word we are told by Bible students is the same word used by a shipbuilder when the ship was done. Look at everything. All the planks, all the rigging, all the caulking, all the all the portholes, everything. And he'd say, it is finished. This wasn't, this wasn't an admission of, oh, I've been beaten. No, this was, this was actually a statement of rejoicing. Yeah. It is finished. We are told by Bible students that when, when a painter finished his portrait, he'd stand back at it from it. And if you have ever painted or drawn pictures, you know that it is, there is, it is an art, not a science. It's an art for an artist to know when to be done. Sometimes we, we paint something, we think it's done, then we, we come back to another day, and we step back, and we say, oh. No, it needs a tiny bit more shade of green right there. Okay, put that on. Done for a day, step back and look at it, and go, mm, it needs... But when the painter knows that it's done, what he'd say? It is finished. A carpenter. A carpenter looking at a at his house that he's built. The structure. When it's all done, it is finished. When Jesus said, it is finished, he was not saying I'm through. I'm beaten. They got me. No. He was saying, what I came to do, I have done. And it is done. To the nth degree, it is perfectly done. It is finished. It's done. I have completed the work that the Father sent me to do. And so what was this Portrait. What is this portrait showing us here? This portrait is the portrait of a victorious death. A victorious death. When Jesus died, it was it was a victory. It was a victory. He conquered sin. He conquered death. Through death, he conquered death. It's victorious. And so when we think about what Jesus Christ our Lord said 
in John chapter 10 when he said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. I hope you'll remember these portraits that the Gospel of John paints for us to see of the Lord Jesus and how he gave his life for the sheep. Let's review them. The first portrait shows that the death of Jesus was vicarious. It was a substitutionary death and a sin-bearing death. The second portrait showed us that it was a violent death. He said, destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. The third portrait, a vile death. He was he identified himself as, as if he were that serpent in the wilderness. The fourth portrait, vital death. It was necessary to our life that he die on the cross. The fifth portrait, voluntary. He was not forced upon. He said, no man taketh it from me. I lay it down. I lay my life down of myself. I have power to lay it down. I have power to take it again. And finally, and finally, it was a victorious death. And that is how Jesus died for us. Why was it a victorious death? It was victorious because he finished the work that he was given to do by the Father. But also because that wasn't the end. Yes, yes that part of the work was finished. But three days later, three days later, By the resurrection from the dead, he proved himself to be the Son of God. Amen. He died for our sins. He was buried. He rose again the third day according to the scriptures. That is how Jesus died for you and me. That's the portrait. Those are the portraits, the portrait gallery of the death of our Savior in the Gospel of John. He laid down his life for us. Glory, glory to the Lamb of God. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for the Word of God. We thank you for the truth of the Gospel. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, who died for us, rose again from the dead. He made atonement for us. He died as our substitute. He died as our sin-bearer. And in him, and in him alone, we have everlasting, eternal life and forgiveness of sins. How we thank and praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to love him. Help us to serve him. Help us to make his message known. Help us to communicate this faith to others. Use us, I pray, for the glory of God. And again, one more time, thank you for your son. Thank you for Jesus. We pray in his holy name. Amen.